We are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles, if you brought one, to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. We will be there momentarily. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. Uh, You can probably also find a pew Bible somewhere in your vicinity if you would like to read out of one of those. So I've been looking forward uh, to this, uh, the culmination of the series that we've been doing uh, this Sunday in particular uh, for several weeks now. Um, We've had this kind of scheduled out for at least six weeks uh, where I was going to be today. Uh, As you'll see, um, it's fitting for what's going on anyway. Um, But looking forward to it for personal reasons. Um, I say looking forward to, uh, I mean that with a sense of excited anticipation, but also with a sense of dread. Uh, Because I have to tell you uh, something um, vulnerable uh, and make a little bit of a confession this morning. Uh, The confession is this. Uh, That's a terrible way for a pastor to start it, isn't it? Like, I have something to confess. Uh, That's like Jimmy Swagger. Never mind. Um, I I don't have anything to confess like that. Trust me, please. Uh, No no tears or anything like that, uh, uh, like you've seen in the past. All right. Talk about awkward. There you go, Joel. I met your awkwardness and raised you mine. Um, (laughs) But I do have something personal I need to tell you about. Um, And the confession is, many of you at the beginning of January thought that I had the flu. Uh, and so bad that I had to uh, remove myself uh, from the public for a while. Uh, and uh, the confession is, we didn't ever tell anybody that I had the flu. We just went along when people assumed uh, that that was the case. Uh, Corbin got sick. I went and got him one day, uh, and it just it, it snowballed from there uh, that Corbin and his dad have the flu. So I had the flu. Um, confession is, I didn't have the flu. Um, what was going on the first week of the first full week of January in my life uh, was something different. And uh, so June the, January the 6th, that would have been the Monday of that week, uh, from Tuesday to Saturday of that week, uh, I went through a series of panic attacks um, that I've never felt anything like before in my life. I have had them before. I've had some minor, what, what I now see is relatively minor panic attacks, um, but those usually had a, a, a reason to be panicked. Um, There was something going on, whether it was uh, worrying about, uh, you know, Corbin when he had the thing, had to go to the hospital and have that operated on or other things like that. There was something that that gave rise to panic. Um, But these panic attacks that I experienced then, there wasn't anything to be panicked about. Um, Rationally speaking, and I knew it then as well in my head, rationally, that everything was fine. Uh, that nothing was wrong, that I was going to be okay, that my family was going to be okay, uh, but my fight or flight response kicked in, uh, and there didn't seem to be any reason for it to be going. Uh, if you've ever been through that, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's like something is coming at you, you can't see it, you, you know it's not there, you know you're fine, but you can't turn that part of your brain off. And I couldn't. And I got to the point where after trying several different ways, uh, talking to an urgent care doctor because I couldn't get into a regular doctor, talking to a teledoctor, talking to other people, I, couldn't, I part, wasn't able to sleep for several days. That was part of the whole problem. Uh, all of the things that went with that, not finding a space and just getting to the point where in my counselor's office, I have a counselor, by the way, I'll go ahead and admit that. In my counselor's office, uh, that Saturday, which would have been January the 10th, um, it was so intense that I, I didn't know what to do. And uh, totally felt like I was at the end of myself, and I was. So I called Cheryl, and I was like, hey, she was at a UIL thing, um, which 
school people that were there and saw her leave quickly that day. You know why? Um, I told her, I, I got I to gotta go to the ER. I got I to gotta get some something to help. Um, so I went to the Baylor ER, the standalone ER that's in Burleson. Um, they saw me for a while, asked several questions. Uh, and their guidance uh, was to tell me to go to a, uh, a hospital for a couple of days, a hospital that specializes in that sort of treatment. Um, and so they told me two or three days, they'll get you some meds, you'll feel better, you'll be good to go. Uh, so I went to a hospital in South Fort Worth, or West Fort Worth, I guess, really. Um, and uh, upon check-in, they told us, this is normally a 10-day program. Um, so, you know, already worried about that. That 10 days, by the way, would have taken us into the time that we were supposed to leave to go to Israel. So there's the worry about that. Um, but the next morning, I saw a doctor. This was Sunday morning. Joel was filling in for me that Sunday. Uh, Joel went to a, a different seminary than I did, but we both had professors tell us, always have a sermon in your back pocket. And so I'm grateful that he did. Um, and so he, he, he preached for me that Sunday morning. Um, I was still trying to figure everything out that Sunday. Met with the doctor, the psychiatrist told them what was going on, told them about the trip that was coming up, and I still haven't figured out. I've seen this guy several times since. Uh, he's an Austrian. Uh, he's got a cool accent. Um, I don't know what his faith is, but once I told him what was going on, he said, you will be on that plane. Don't worry about it. Uh, and so in five days that I stayed there, they, they got me some medicine, got things, you know, gave me some, some tools to use outside of medicine, uh, and was able to go, get home, go on a trip, a life-changing adventure of a trip, uh, and God really used that time. There's something about God where he meets us in our brokenness, amen? Uh, there's something about God where in the places when we're not looking for him, or even more so the places when we feel like he's absent, uh, that he shows up in royal fashion. Uh, and he did that while we were on this trip, uh, and he's done that since through this trial. And what I want to say before I say anything else is to anyone out there who is dealing with anxiety or depression, what I want you to know, first of all, is you are not alone, right? And you are not broken. In Jesus' name, I hope you hear that reality. Um, It is an illness, just like anything else. And sometimes the best medicine, I'll say this as a pastor, is actual medicine. Um, And sometimes you need some stuff to make you feel better, just like you do when you have... uh, some sort of virus or something else. That was a terrible metaphor, but um, it would have worked a week ago. <clears throat> if you have anything, uh, if you're sick, you know, get some medicine. It makes you feel better. Uh, so hear that and hear that you're not weak in seeking help. Um, matter of fact, uh, the more you isolate yourself, the weaker you're going to be. Uh, and if you know me very well, you know that I, I tend to process a lot of things inwardly. Um, and that was probably part of this whole thing, uh, is not bringing other people in, professional-wise at least, to help with that as quickly as I needed to. I'd stopped seeing my counselor at that point. Um, so if you need help, we have avenues uh, to help you. We have connections with several different counselors uh, that we can point you to. Um, now I have a connection with a psychiatrist that I can point you to. Uh, we have a lot of different things for you to do. And, and, and maybe it's just you knowing you're not alone and you needing to talk to somebody. Um, just know that you're not alone and know that, that it's not weak. It's actually a sign of strength for you to go get, seek, and be helped. Yes? And the same for the people that you love uh, that go through that. May, you, may we be mindful uh, of people around us because um, what I found out while I was in the hospital is that normal people deal with this stuff regularly. Uh, I was there with a 
uh, policeman, a mounted policeman, which I couldn't think of a cooler job, a horse cop, uh, a nurse, um, a guy in the tech world, uh, students that didn't have jobs, uh, just all sorts of different people with all sorts of different issues. So anxiety, depression, you're not alone. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It's a sign of strength, and it's out there if you look for it. Um, so I left the hospital a few days before our trip uh, with a diagnosis. They have to give you a diagnosis so that you continue to take medicine and all that stuff. Uh, and the diagnosis was panic disorder. Um, stow that away. Keep it for later. It'll be relevant. Uh, but like I said, God has a habit of meeting us in our brokenness. Um, the trip to Israel had a meaning for me that it wouldn't have if I was quote-unquote well. God is molding me in a new way, not only on the trip, but since then. Uh, reaching the end of myself has helped me see how big God is. Um, it's when we realize our smallness, we can often realize God's vastness. Uh, and, and God is bigger than I thought he was. Uh, and, and able to meet me in places that I didn't think he would be able to meet me. Uh, that, if I'm being totally honest, in the throes of the panic attacks, I was wondering where the heck he was. But he showed up in a big way. So God gave me a taste of how big he was on this trip, and particularly in one stop in a place named Caesarea Philippi. Students of Scripture, that name's going to ring a bell. Um, Matthew 16, obviously, is the set, Caesarea Philippi is the setting for this passage. It's a story that I've always loved. It was on the uh, top of my list when, I put, when we got the itinerary and I saw the different places even more so than Bethlehem or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or any of the, the big uh, attractions or, or holy sites uh, in Israel, Caesarea Philippi was probably the one I was the most excited about because I had read a lot about the area and about the context of the passage that we're about to read. But God had more in store for me than I even knew that he did. Just give me a little context from Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Jesus and his disciples find themselves in Caesarea Philippi, which is close today to the northern border of Israel. It's about, we think it's as far as north as Jesus ever went in his ministry. It's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, perhaps the disciples were moving north to, uh, to let things cool down in the south, because if you read Matthew 14, John the Baptist has just been beheaded. Um, uh, also, we're right in the context, Matthew 14 and 15, of a big collection of, of miracles of Jesus. Uh, he feeds 5,000 and then 4,000 uh, with just some, some, you know, a little bread and some fish. Uh, he walks on water. He heals people from all sorts of maladies, uh, even healing people from demonic oppression. And chapter 16 opens up with the Sadducees and the Pharisees <clears throat> demanding even more signs from Jesus and Jesus rebuking them for doing so, pointing us to reality that there is something at work behind the signs, behind the miracles that is of utmost importance that is of more importance than the miracles themselves. And that gets right at the question that Jesus is about to ask his disciples in the passage that we're going to read, the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus anyway? Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Before we read it, let's pray together one more time. Father, again, I thank you for today. God, I thank you for your, your presence here with us right now. God, we thank you again for the chance together and to praise your name and to worship you. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would remove distraction. God, you would allow us to concentrate solely on you. And God, that you would communicate, as we know you are faithful to do, 
through your word to us in such a way that, that you do a work of transformation within us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13 and reading through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus' first question to his disciples gathered near Caesarea Philippi is a simple one. What are people saying about me? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? The disciples respond with a few of the known guesses in the world. Some say that you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist had just been beheaded. So they're thinking that he's a resurrected form of John the Baptist. It tells something about the impacts that John the Baptist had in that part of the world at this time. Some say that you're Elijah. Elijah was supposed by the Jewish people to, uh, to kind of prefigure or come before the coming of the actual Messiah. And so they didn't, might not have thought Jesus was the Messiah, but they might have thought that Jesus was the return of Elijah, which meant that the Messiah was about to come. Uh, Elijah has long been associated for Jews. <coughs> excuse me. Elijah has long been associated for Jews as someone who will come back into play before the end, before everything comes to an end. That's why, if you, when we do the, we're going to have a Passover thing here, um, right before Easter. If you know, if we're able to meet, we're going to have that, and we're going to talk about several things. And one of those is going to be a, a, a seat that they save for Elijah. That's part of it. They think that Elijah is going to come back before the end. And so, some of you, some of people said that Jesus was Elijah because he's going to come before the Messiah and prepare the way for the Messiah. Some people say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It tells you something about the way that Jesus taught, the way that he interacted, that he, like a prophet, was willing to call people on the, on the, uh, on the carpet. Uh, he was willing to, to say the difficult things that needed to be said, uh, that he was someone willing to, to make the necessary statements that needed to be made. Uh, and some think that maybe Jeremiah or some of the other prophets were going to come back too, so there's still some connection with the end or the Messiah coming. It's not as if any of these are necessarily evil things. It's not as if the people who were out there conjecturing about who Jesus was, that they were making some like horrific statement about him. Oh, he's a, he's a charlatan. He's a fake. He's a liar. Uh, he's a messenger of Satan. Um, some of the Pharisees or Sadducees might say that, but that's not what these people that they're thinking about are saying that Jesus is. They're saying in a worldly manner, good things about Jesus. Oh, he's, he, he's like one of the prophets. He's like Elijah. He's like John the Baptist. It's similar to the context you would find in a day's world. If you just went out on the street and asked people, who is Jesus? Some might say a good teacher, right? Some might say someone who, who gave good moral truths that we should follow and apply to our lives today to make our lives better. Others and other religions might even say that Jesus was a prophet. We know that Islam itself teaches that Jesus was a prophet to be revered, but not the son of God, not divine in any way. He, God used him, but he was not actually God. And so we have a lot of different words or thoughts about the identity of Jesus today, just like they did in Jesus' time when he was walking the earth. 
The world is full of misled ideas of Jesus' identity. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the matter and turns to his followers. He says, okay, it's up to you guys. Who do you say that I am? It's an important question. Uh, A question that I think if we're looking in Scripture, we should also ask ourselves. Not who do you say that you are. Who is Jesus to you, really? All the miracles, all the other things that he does, okay, that's nice, it's fun to read about, things that he teaches you to do, that's good, but who is he really? Peter, being Peter, boldly speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the one promised, the one to come. And Jesus commends Peter for saying this. He turns to him and says, Peter, yes. You almost hear Jesus saying, yes, you're getting it. Finally, you guys are starting to get the idea about what's really happening and what's really going on behind the scenes. You didn't come up with this yourself, Simon, son of John. No, this is not from flesh and blood. This is from my father. This is a divine truth. You got this from somewhere else, not from in your own brain. There's something at work here that's divine, that is good, that is pointing towards the true reality of what's actually going on. And what's important about, or what's extra important about Peter's statement, is that it's not made in a euphoric moment. It's not made in the midst of some miracle working of Jesus. It's not as if Peter was on the boat, saw Jesus walking on the water, coming his direction, and then exclaims that at this point, nor is he with his disciples picking up the leftovers from the feeding of the 5,000 and says it at that point. No, this is a calm moment where they're all just together and talking, and Peter says in the midst of a calm moment, the truth You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And again, Jesus commends him for that reality. I've quoted this to you before, but it's a quote worth repeating, and one that is relevant to this passage. And it's a quote from A.W. Tozer, and he once said that the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. You might think one of the most important things about you is the way you treat others. The way that you treat others is likely going to be defined by what you believe about God. Who you believe God is. What kind of God you believe that you follow. Most important thing about you is what you believe about God. Perhaps Tozer was thinking of this passage when he wrote that quote for the first time thinking of what Peter said about God and, and, and Jesus' commendation of that and celebration of what Peter had said. And not only does he celebrate what Peter has said, he goes on to commend Peter further. And he says that you are Peter. You are the rock. That's what Peter's name meant in, in, in Greek and in Aramaic. And if, if you look at Aramaic, the words rock and Peter are the same. Kepha. You are Kepha, and on this Kepha, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Peter himself will be the leader moving forward, and also the proclamation that he had is important about what the church is going to be built on. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus delivers that famous statement. The one that made me excited to be in Caesarea Philippi that day, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. When he said... You are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That obviously means the forces of evil, that no evil can conquer Jesus, that no evil evil can conquer his church. 
But if you look at the Greek word, and some of your translations might actually read this way, it's more properly read, the, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Hades was the realm of the dead. So many take this to read that not only is Jesus saying that the evil will not prevail against the church, but death will not prevail against your church either. And that kind of makes sense because he's about to start talking about his own death. He's about to start his march towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. He's about to tell his disciples what's going on, and Peter is not going to like it. If you read the rest of the story, you know what I'm talking about. So maybe it's that. But there's also something much more deep and, and, and very beautiful about what Jesus is saying when you read it in the context of what's going on. First of all, before I, realize, before I under, un, uncover that, I, I don't want to skip this fact that Jesus is talking about the church and the importance of what the church actually is. This is the first time in the New Testament that Jesus uses the Greek word for church, which is ekklesia. Ekklesia, in case you're wondering what that means, it means called out ones. Kaleo in Greek is the word to call out. So it's people who are called out. They are set aside. They are the assembled ones who come together for the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's the first time that this is used in the New Testament. But if you pick up a copy of the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, they use this word several places when it talked about the assembly of Israel coming together. And so in a way, the idea is an Old Testament idea. It's a Hebrew idea. And Jesus is bringing this idea back and dusting it off and saying, remember this what thing you were called to be? Uh, the, 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 the descendants of Abraham who were going to make a difference in the world, who were going to affect everyone? whose descendants were going to be as numerous as the sand on the shore, and who were going to take God's word out to every generation. Remember that, people. You are that people. And on you, Peter, on this proclamation that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to build that people again. And we are that people today. We are the continuation of the ecclesia, the called out ones. We are the called out ones. You and I, called to be separate from the rest of the world. You and I, called to have a purpose beyond this world. We represent another kingdom. It's one of Paul's favorite metaphors in his letters, is to have a dual citizenship, both citizens of this world and citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are ambassadors to Christ in this world. We come representing him to a world that is dying and in need of him. And it is in these moments in our world, in our culture, where people realize the need and we get to brush off our citizenship card in heaven and remind ourselves who we really are and where our hope really is and where it really lies and to be ambassadors of hope in a hopeless world. That's what we are called to be, the called out ones. And as the called out ones, not even the gates of Hades will prevail against it. Just north of Caesarea Philippi, a little closer to the northernmost border, of Israel, there was another site that we visited, the archaeological dig of the ancient city of Dan. Uh, If you go back and you look at the Danites and where they lived in Scripture, one of the 12 tribes, a city named Laish, other places in Genesis, uh, it is that city. Archaeologists believe that they have uncovered in the ancient city of Dan the oldest known gate to a city in the world. They call it the Canaanite gate to the city of Dan. They believed it's the, it's, it's the gate that Abraham passed through on his way to rescue Lot. You can remember that story in Genesis. But this was also a place a little bit later in the salvation history of God's people um, where things went awry. When the northern and southern kingdoms divided, Dan was kind of a home to the northern kingdom. When Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, was reigning, if you can remember, one of the problems that he had was he didn't want people to travel south to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God there. 
He wanted them to have their own place so that he didn't lose that power. And so he built his own altar where people could perform sacrifices. So archaeologists believe that uncover that altar. We got to see it. I don't have a picture of that. But we got to see that. But Jeroboam didn't just build an altar to the one true God. There was also eventually altars to other gods, which became one of the main problems for Israel and the southern king of Judah moving forward. Now, that is just to the north of Caesarea Philippi. And since that time, that area was known for pagan worship. First, it was the worship of Bel, like Jeroboam was probably setting up gods to, to, to God, setting up altars to God to a god like Baal. First, it was that, and then it was some of the Greek gods. And so you have this kind of Greek mythology that runs throughout, and it turned into that because the Greeks had moved into this area. And so this is what's going on in Caesarea Philippi: is that there are a lot of Greeks there that believe that Greek gods are at work. And let me just go ahead and show you a picture, Dave. If you'll throw the first picture up there, this is a cave just north just outside of Caesarea Philippi. And you can see the waters coming down. We went on a beautiful day after it had just rained a bunch uh, in Israel, a lot for for them. Uh, And Mount Hermon is a mount that's on the northern part uh, of Israel. Um, I'm telling you, this is like the northernmost point. When we were in the archaeological side of Dan, we could literally look into Lebanon. That's how far north we were, uh, a little... A little weird. Um, there were also trenches dug left over by the Syrians from the Six-Day War. Uh, it was just a lot of worlds colliding uh, in that small area. So at the northernmost point, um, Mount Hermon, the, the, this tall place where there's still a ski resort that people go to now, uh, the snow melt that would come down and it would be a part of a spring system that came out of this cave to the north of Caesarea Philippi. The springs no longer come out of the caves. It's just kind of a recent development. There was an earthquake, and now it comes out a little bit lower. You can kind of see where it comes out now. But at the time, Dave, if you go to the next picture, at the time, the springs came directly out of this cave. That's rainwater that's in there right now. That's not spring water in that picture. Um, But I'm looking down into the cave from kind of the ledge to the right of it and taking that picture. The Greeks believed that many of the gods would, during the winter, um, go into the underworld. And in the spring, they would come back. And one of the reasons they believe that is because water started flowing there in the spring. And so you have this spring coming out of a cave, coming out of nowhere, just water coming up out of the ground. And the Greeks believed that that was a connection to the underworld. And again, the Greek word for underworld is Hades. And so this cave was actually known as the Gates of Hades. That was the vernacular, like what it was commonly called in that area. It's still kind of known that today. If you look up the gate of Hades, you will find the scripture, but you'll also find some stuff about Caesarea Philippi in this cave that the spring came out of. And so Jesus, Dave, if you could back up to the other picture. I have in my head Jesus being on that rock cliff just to the right of the cave, just to the north, just outside of the city of Caesarea Philippi, with his disciples, you see a really rocky area. And it's enough where you could stand and hang out. That's why I was able to take the picture that I, took, that I just showed you. I have this picture of him sitting with his disciples. They're inevitably afraid because not only had John the Baptist just been killed, but they're beginning to get into the heart of Gentile world. They're beginning to heart of, in the heart of all that's immoral, uh, all that's evil, all the stuff that went along with worship of the Greek gods, everything that made that place detestable to them. They're getting right in the middle of it. And Jesus, in that place, tells them, you are the church, and nothing is going to beat you. Not even the gates of Hades. 
Not even all that this world has to offer. Not even all the immorality, all the fallenness, all the debauchery, all the ugliness. Nothing in this world can prevail against you. So yes, Jesus is talking about the evil one and all the evil forces. Yes, Jesus is talking about the powers of death. But also, Jesus is talking about the powers that are unseen working behind the scenes in our world against all that is good and holy when he tells his church nothing will prevail against you. Not a single thing. That's why this passage has always excited me. No worldly force can conquer the church of Jesus Christ. I see Jesus in my head on that rock cliff, maybe even patting some rocks. There's some boulders around as he talks with them and says, You, yes, Peter, you got it. I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are patting a rock. You are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And none of this junk is going to come against you. Nothing is going to stop us. Not even the Greek world and all that it has to offer. We are totally ir. We are totally irrepressible, irresistible. We are a force that cannot be stopped. Nothing is going to stop the church. That's exciting, isn't it? That's a beautiful truth. It, 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 it brings a little more to it than just reading about the gates of Hades. I actually looked into the gates of Hades, according to the Greeks. I knew all of that already. I'd read about it. I was excited. That was the reason why I wanted to go there. But what I did not know... Is God at his absolute best. Something that I didn't see coming. Something I didn't know about this place. Or if I knew it, I had forgotten it. Dave, if you could put the next picture up. There was a temple to one of the Greek gods right beside the gates of Hades. And the ruins are still there. And the temple is to the god of Pan. Dave, if you go to the next picture. Uh, there's just one example. That's not a great example. It's more of just a sign. But there's all sorts of ruins around there's a grotto there's stables there's all sorts of things the greek god pan half man half goat a lot of really perverse stuff if you go read about pan and how he was worshiped but there's also some other stuff that is germane to the conversation today the greeks had myths about pan that he was a god who lived in the wilderness next time you hear a pan flute know that that's where it came from. That's why it sounds so evil. I'm just kidding. Um, but pan flute, that's, he, would, he would run around and play a fl- flute. You might have seen that depiction. Half man, half goat, guy playing a flute. That's pan. Um, and he would hide in the woods. And if a traveler was going through the woods and there was a rustling, it would be pan rustling, striking fear into the heart of the traveler. And then he would move along down the path and do it again. And it would just get worse and worse. And the myth was that eventually pan would jump out and scare people. That's kind of what he was known to do, to scare travelers. Not only that, according to Greek mythology, he had what's called a stentorian or centurion, I can't remember, voice, which was a voice that was so loud and so big that it literally struck people irrational with fear. And it's actually in some of the Greek mythology that he would use it in battle, that he would cry out loudly and the enemy would become completely, like, think about and how the Midianites just lose their mind. Like, take that in Greek mythology. That's what they thought Pan could do, that he would just yell and it would cause this irrational fear and all animals and people would just run away. And our God told us on the way that that's actually Pan is where we get the word panic in our English language. And there's proof. If you go and you read Josephus, who is the Jewish historian that tells us so much about what there is to know about the first world, first century world of Jesus, he talks about people having a panic kind of fear. And then if you look at his Greek counterpart, Plutarch, he talks about an irrational fear that was called panic fear in that time, both from the same time period that Jesus was, that Jesus was living. These people were writing these things down. 
And so I got to stand on the rock where Jesus might have told his disciples that they are the church and that he's going to that they're the rock, and he's going to build his church upon them and upon the proclamation that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I got to stand at the very place where Jesus looked at them and told them, hell, death, the ways of this world will not prevail against his church. And I got to stand at the very place, my feet stood on the very place, half a world away, where panic, or at least the word, was born. One week after, I was given the label of having a panic disorder. Isn't God good? It's something I'm going to have to work through the rest of my life. I'm not just going to stop taking pills because I prayed it away. I'm not that foolish. God uses all means to heal. But what I am today is confident. And I'm confident that nothing can prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. No worldly force can conquer the church of Jesus Christ. Not even panic. I was planning on saying this to you months ago. But it kind of fits, doesn't it? So let me go ahead and tell you a, a bonus to add to this sermon that I've added over the last few days because of everything that's been going on. And let me first tell you that I, I, I'm good right now. Uh, God is working in me. Uh, God is restoring me. It's, it's, it's not something that I don't still struggle with from time to time. But I, I have means and tools and people necessary now to help me walk through that. I'm stronger than I was. Not because of myself, but because of God within me and the people he's placed around me. And so we have a choice, church, to make today, in this day of fear, panic, and hysteria, a choice of two things, two general choices in my opinion. One, we choose panic and selfishness. We choose to stock up on everything, even toilet paper. I'm with you. Like, what in the heck? Why have that, of all things? We get to choose. Did I hear a clap? Did I hear somebody start clapping? Slow clap. We'll get it going. No, I'm just kidding. But that and everything else that, that people have just hoarded, we get to choose to think about, oh, how am I going to survive? What am I going to do? Oh, how terrible it's going to be to be locked at home for 14 days. Uh, what if the internet quits? Uh, what if they lock down the stores? What if, 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 what if? And we get to worry about ourselves and panic about ourselves and be selfish or maybe choose a different version of panic to say, ah, it's no big deal. Everybody's going to be fine. I'm going to walk around and do whatever I want to and kind of live in this denial world instead of listening to our government and the people who are telling us to take precautions because they care about our well-being and the well-being of society as a whole. We can do all of those different kinds of things and choose panic and selfishness or we can choose to be the church of Jesus Christ, upon which nothing can prevail against. We can be the light of the world, a city on a hill, because if you city on a hill, it can't be hidden. If you put a lamp on a lampstand, it, it, it can't be hidden. We get to be that. Have you ever noticed, if you look through the history of the church or the history of the world, that the light of the church of Jesus Christ has shined the brightest in the darkest of times? We have lived in light for a long, long time. We have lived in a, in, in a world of leisure and comfort and immediate gratification for a long time where if that gets disrupted to any degree, everybody panics and loses their mind. And instead of doing that, may we, instead of panicking, may we, instead of worrying, pray. Paul tells us, Philippians 4, to instead of being worried about everything, pray about everything. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will come to you through Jesus Christ. Amen? Do you believe that, church? 
you've heard it, you've preached it your whole life, we have an opportunity to actually put it into action that we haven't had in the modern church in a long time because we haven't needed to have it because God has been so darn good to us. At this time that he allows something like this to happen, we have the chance to actually take our light out from underneath the bushel that so many of us have had it under and to show it to the rest of the world. You want to know why I'm not afraid? Because Jesus is within me. You want to know why I'm not afraid? Because death can come at me, and I'm going to come out on the other side okay. And what I mean by okay is millions and millions and millions of years standing on a street of gold, looking at the throne of God, and singing with all the saints forever and ever and ever with everything that I could ever need. I think that's okay. Can I get an amen on that? And so even if death comes for us, which I don't think it's going to, by the way, even if death comes for us, we are going to be good. Even if panic comes for us, we're going to be good. Even if hospitals fail, even if governments fall, we're going to be good. We don't need the United States. We don't need our infrastructure. Yes, those things are good, and we want those things for the betterment of everyone around us. But even when and if they fail, and someday, someday they're probably going to. Hopefully that's a long time from now. But someday they will, and guess what? The kingdom of God will not. Because nothing will prevail against the church. So we don't have a reason to panic. We don't have a reason to be afraid. Instead, we have another choice to make. And that is to be the light. That is to stop. And instead of worrying about self, think, how is this affecting my neighbor? I say this especially for this service. Our first service we had was mostly older folks. For us, most of us are not in the range of it being a super bad thing, right? For most of us in the room today, this is no different than the flu. For older people, that's not the case. I'm not saying that it's the same thing as the flu. I'm not saying that. But for most of us, physically in this room, if we were to contract this virus, it would bother us no worse than the common flu would. Yes, I think we can mostly agree upon that. Uh, There might be a little worse, but most of us are going to be fine. The large majority of us in this room, almost all of us in this room, But some of our neighbors are in a high-risk category. Some of our neighbors are immunosuppressed for whatever reasons. Maybe they just had a recent injury, like getting burned. Somebody, people, of you people are in a community with people who are going through that right now. Or maybe they're sick for some other reason. Or maybe they're elderly, whatever it might be. The choice of somebody who's a lot on a hill, or a lot on a, a, whatever, you know what I'm talking about, a city on a hill. For those of us who choose to be a city on a hill, Our question, our first question is, what can I do for my neighbor? Who do you need to check on? Who do you need to make sure is okay in the days to come? As you're buying groceries, who else can you buy groceries for? Who else can you take things to? And we're going to do our best as a church to be a clearinghouse for that information. If you have information of someone who is in need and you don't know how to meet that need, call us. Come to the office. Our, our office is going to be open this week. I don't see any reason we'll close anytime soon because it's just us in the office. Just give us a call, Monday through Friday, 8 to 4. Let us know of the need. And, 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 and I know there's a lot of you out there that we might be calling to say, hey, can you meet this need? Uh, can you make this happen? Can you buy this food? Uh, we'll do whatever we need to do. Even if that's, you know, I made a joke in the first service letting them know that if they need help, we can help them. If we need to get a bag of groceries, 
drop it off on their doorstep, spray it with Lysol and leave. That's what we'll do, right? We'll do whatever we need to do to be there for our community. And, and, and we're going to be putting stuff out there on Facebook and other places, email about ways that we can meet the need of our brothers and sisters in Christ and be a witness to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church has got a really bad rap as of late. And when I say as of late, basically my life, it's just been declining, right? Uh, it, it's been getting worse and worse. The, the reputation that the church has, especially over the last decade, it just seems like people are losing more and more faith in the church. This is exactly what we are created for. This is exactly why Jesus built on the rock, so that we would be there in dark times to show the world where real hope is found. May we be that. Not a group of people that are panicking, but may we be a group of people who, while everybody else is panicking and running in, we're going out. We're extending instead of retracting. We're letting them know that you're not alone, that Christ has your back, we have your back. We're letting them know, as we have been saying for over a year now at First Baptist Church, Jesus loves you and we do too. It's time to prove it. Amen? We have a unique opportunity to prove that. We have a unique opportunity to give the evangelical church of the United States of America back its good name during this time. Evangelical, what does that mean? Messengers of the good news of Jesus, of the gospel. Let's get busy doing that. And so during our time of invitation, we're going to sing about a big God. I requested this, this song. Joel and the band were awesome to make sure we played it. About God being bigger than we thought he was. About being surprised at how big God is. I would have said two months ago, three months ago, I would have said in, in Christmas that, oh, God is amazing. God is big. I can't believe how big he is. But I'm telling you now, he's bigger now than he was then to me. Just because it's what he's seen me through. And I know now, since God has allowed me to go through that, that he, he's, he's big enough to handle this. And so we're going to sing about God's bigness. And as we do that, may you open your heart and your mind to hear the message of God to you directly. How can you be the church? How can you be a called out one, set apart from the rest of the world, not prone to the worries of the world, but prone instead to minister as an ambassador of Christ, citizen of the kingdom of heaven to this world? How can you do that? How can you love your neighbor during this time? The gates of hell will not prevail against you. Nothing will. In Jesus' name, let us do exactly what he said to do and go. Who is God putting on your heart? Think about that during this time of invitation. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Our band is going to lead us in worship. You move in whatever way God is calling. Oh, Father, you are good. You're better than I thought you were. I just didn't know how big you were, and I still don't. Oh, God, you still have so much to show us. May you continue to open our eyes every day to how big you are. And God, in that, may you give us peace. May we rest in the fact, the dual fact that you are both sovereign and savior, that you're more powerful than we could ever imagine and more loving than we could ever imagine and that you are for us. God, help us to rest in that reality and to have peace no matter what the day's in store. And God, as we rest in that, may you then show us how to move, how to be your hands and feet, how to put fear and panic aside and go. In Jesus' name, amen.